Hello, my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's Definitely Storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable, or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 20 I had forgotten to draw my curtain, which I usually did, and also to let down my window blind. The consequence was that when the moon, which was full and bright, for the night was fine, came in her course to that space in the sky opposite my casement, and looked in at me through the unveiled panes, her glorious gaze roused me. Awaking in the dead of night, I opened my eyes on her disk, silver-white and crystal-clear. It was beautiful, but too solemn. I half-rose and stretched my arm to draw the curtain. Good God! What a cry! The night, its silence, its rest was rent in twain by a savage, a sharp, a shrilly sound that ran from end to end of Thornfield Hall. My pulse stopped. My heart stood still. My stretched arm was paralyzed. The cry died and was not renewed. Indeed, whatever being uttered that fearful shriek could not soon repeat it, Not the whitest winged condor of the Andes could, twice in succession, send out such a yell from the cloud shrouding its eerie. The thing delivering such utterance must rest ere it could repeat the effort. It came out of the third story, for it passed overhead. And overhead, yes, in the room just above my chamber ceiling, I now heard a struggle, a deadly one, it seemed from the noise, and a half-smothered voice shouted, Help! 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 three times, rapidly. Oh, no one! Come! It cried, and then, while the staggering and stamping went on wildly, I distinguished through plank and plaster. Rochester! Rochester, for God's sake! Come! A chamber door opened, Someone ran or rushed along the gallery. Another step stamped on the flooring above, and something fell, and there was silence. I had put on some clothes, though horror shook all my limbs. I issued from my apartment. The sleepers were all aroused. Ejaculations, terrified murmurs sounded in every room door after door unclosed. One looked out and another looked out. The gallery filled. Gentlemen and ladies alike had quitted their beds, and, Oh, what is it? Who is hurt? What has happened? Fetch a light! Is it fire? Are there robbers? Where shall we run? was demanded confusedly on all hands. But for the moonlight they would have been in complete darkness. They ran to and fro. They crowded together. Some sobbed, some stumbled. The confusion was inextricable. "'Where the devil is Rochester?' 
cried Colonel Dent. I cannot find him in his bed. Here, here, was shouted in return. Be composed, all of you. I'm coming. And the door at the end of the gallery opened, and Mr. Rochester advanced with a candle. He had just descended from the upper story. One of the ladies ran to him directly. She seized his arm. It was Miss Ingram. What awful event has taken place, said she. Speak, let us know the worst at once. But don't pull me down or strangle me, he replied, for the Mrs. Eshton were clinging about him now, and the two dowagers in vast white wrappers were bearing down on him like ships in full sail. All's right, all's right, he cried. It's a mere rehearsal of much ado about nothing. Ladies, keep off, or I shall wax dangerous. And dangerous he looked. His black eyes darted sparks. Calming himself by an effort, he added, A servant has had a nightmare, that is all. She's an excitable, nervous person. She construed her dream into an apparition, or something of that sort, no doubt, and has taken a fit with fright. Now then, I must see you all back into your rooms, or till the house is settled, she cannot be looked after. Gentlemen, have the goodness to set the ladies the example. Miss Ingram, I'm sure you will not fail in evincing superiority to idle terrors. Amy and Louisa, return to your nests like a pair of doves as you are. Madams, to the dowagers, you will take cold to a dead certainty if you stay in this chill gallery any longer. And so, by dint of alternate coaxing and commanding, he contrived to get them all once more enclosed in their separate dormitories. I did not wait to be ordered back to mine, but retreated unnoticed, as unnoticed I had left it. Not, however, to go to bed. On the contrary, I began and dressed myself carefully. The sounds I had heard after the scream and the words that had been uttered had probably been heard only by me, for they had proceeded from the room above mine. But they assured me that it was not a servant's dream which had thus struck horror through the house. And that explanation Mr. Rochester had given was merely an invention framed to pacify his guests. I dressed then to be ready for emergencies. When dressed... I sat a long time by the window, looking out over the silent grounds and silvered fields, and waiting for I knew not what. It seemed to me that some event must follow the strange cry, struggle, and call. No. Stillness returned. Each murmur and movement ceased gradually, and in about an hour Thornfield Hall was again as hushed as a desert. It seemed that sleep and night had resumed their empire. Meantime, the moon declined. She was about to set. Not liking to sit in the cold and darkness, I thought I would lie down on my bed, dressed as I was. I left the window, and moved with little noise across the carpet. As I stopped to take off my shoes, a cautious hand tapped low at the door. Am I wanted? I asked. Are you up? Asked the voice I expected to hear, namely my master's. Yes, sir. And dressed? Yes. Come out then, quietly. 
I obeyed. Mr. Rochester stood in the gallery holding a light. I want you, he said. Come this way, take your time, and make no noise. My slippers were thin. I could walk the matted floor softly as a cat. He glided up the gallery and up the stairs and stopped in the dark, low corridor of the fateful third story. I had followed and stood at his side. Have you a sponge in your room? He asked in a whisper. Yes, sir. Have you any salts, volatile salts? Yes. Go back and fetch both. I returned, sought the sponge on the washstand, the salts in my drawer, and once more retraced my steps. He still waited. He held a key in his hand, approaching one of the small black doors. He put it in the lock. He paused and addressed me again. You don't turn sick at the sight of blood. I think I shall not. I have never been tried yet. I felt a thrill while I answered him, but no coldness and no faintness. Just give me your hand, he said. It will not do to risk a fainting fit. I put my fingers into his. Warm and steady, was his remark. He turned the key and opened the door. I saw a room I remembered to have seen before, the day Mrs. Fairfax showed me over the house. It was hung with tapestry, but the tapestry was now looped up in one part, and there was a door apparent, which had then been concealed. The door was open. A light shone out of the room within. I heard thence a snarling, snatching sound, almost like a dog quarreling. Mr. Rochester, putting down his candle, said to me, Wait a minute. And then he went forward to the inner apartment. A shout of laughter greeted his entrance, noisy at first and terminating in Grace Poole's own goblin, ha ha. She then was there. He made some sort of arrangement without speaking, though I heard a low voice address him. He came out and closed the door behind him. Here, Jane, he said, and I walked round to the other side of a large bed, which with its drawn curtains concealed a considerable portion of the chamber. An easy chair was near the bedhead. A man sat in it, dressed with the exception of his coat. He was still. His head leant back. His eyes were closed. Mr. Rochester held the candle over him. I recognized in his pale and seemingly lifeless face the stranger, Mason. I saw, too, that his linen on one side and one arm was almost soaked in blood. Hold the candle, said Mr. Rochester, and I took it. He fetched a basin of water from the washstand. Hold that, said he. I obeyed. He took the sponge, dipped it in, and moistened the corpse-like face. He asked for my smelling bottle and applied it to the nostrils. Mr. Mason shortly unclosed his eyes. He groaned. Mr. Rochester opened the shirt of the wounded man whose arm and shoulder were bandaged. He sponged away blood, trickling fast down. Is there immediate danger? murmured Mr. Mason. No, a mere scratch. Don't be so overcome, man. Bear up. 
I'll fetch a surgeon for you now myself. You'll be able to be removed by morning, I hope. Jane, he continued. Sir? I shall have to leave you in this room with this gentleman for an hour, or perhaps two hours. You will sponge the blood as I do when it returns. If he feels faint, you will put the glass of water on that stand to his lips, and your salts to his nose. You will not speak to him on any pretext. And, Richard, it will be at the peril of your life if you speak to her. Open your lips, agitate yourself, and I'll not answer for the consequences. Again, the poor man groaned. He looked as if he dared not move. Fear either of death or of something else appeared almost to paralyze him. Mr. Rochester put the now bloody sponge into my hand, and I proceeded to use it as he had done. He watched me a second, then sang, Remember, no conversation. He left the room. I experienced a strange feeling as the key grated in the lock, and the sound of his retreating steps ceased to be heard. Here, then, I was in the third story, fastened into one of its mystic cells. Night around me, a pale and bloody spectacle under my eyes and hands, a murderess hardly separated from me by a single door. Yes, that was appalling. The rest I could bear, but I shuddered at the thought of Grace Poole bursting out upon me. I must keep to my post, however. I must watch this ghastly countenance, these blue, still lips forbidden to unclose, these eyes now shut, now opening, now wandering through the room, now fixing on me, and ever glazed with the dullness of horror. I must dip my hand again and again in the basin of blood and water and wipe away the trickling gore. I must see the light of the unsnuffed candle wane on my employment. The shadows darken on the wrought antique tapestry round me and grow black under the hangings of the vast old bed and quiver strangely over the doors of a great cabinet opposite, whose front, divided into twelve panels, bore in grim design the heads of the twelve apostles, each enclosed in its separate panel as in a frame, while above them at the top rose an ebon crucifix and a dying Christ. According as the shifting obscurity and flickering gleam hovered here or glanced there, it was now the bearded physician Luke that bent his brow, now St. John's long hair that waved, and anon the devilish face of Judas that grew out of the panel and seemed gathering life and threatening a revelation of the arch-traitor of Satan himself in his subordinate's form. Amidst all this, I had to listen as well as watch, to listen for the movements of the wild beast or the fiend in yonder side den, but since Mr. Rochester's visit it seemed spellbound. All the night I heard but three sounds at three long intervals. A step creak, a momentary renewal of the snarling canine noise, and a deep human groan. Then my own thoughts worried me. What crime was this that lived incarnate in this sequestered mansion that could neither be expelled nor subdued by the owner? What mystery, 
that broke out now in fire and now in blood at the deadest hours of night what creature was it that masked in an ordinary woman's face and shape uttered the voice now of a mocking demon and anon of a carrion-seeking bird of prey and this man i bent over this commonplace quiet stranger how had he become involved in the web of horror and why had the fury flown at him what made him seek this quarter of the house at an untimely season when he should have been asleep in bed i heard mr rochester assign him an apartment below what brought him here and why now was he so tame under the violence or treachery done him why did he so quietly submit to the concealment mr rochester enforced why did mr rochester enforce this concealment his guest had been outraged his own life on a former occasion had been hideously plotted against and both attempts he smothered in secrecy and sank in oblivion lastly i saw mr mason was submissive to mr rochester that the impetuous will of the latter held complete sway over the inertness of the former the few words which had passed between them assured me of this it was evident that in their former intercourse the passive disposition of the one had been habitually influenced by the active energy of the other whence then had arisen mr rochester's dismay when he heard of mr mason's arrival why had the mere name of this unresisting individual whom his word now sufficed to control like a child fallen on him a few hours since as a thunderbolt might fall on an oak oh i could not forget his look and his paleness when he whispered jane i've got a blow i've got a blow jane i could not forget how the arm had trembled which he rested on my shoulder and it was no light matter which could thus bow the resolute spirit and thrill the vigorous frame of fairfax rochester when will he come when will he come i cried inwardly as the night lingered and lingered as my bleeding patient drooped moaned sickened and neither day nor aid arrived i had again and again held the water to mason's white lips again and again offered him the stimulating salts my efforts seemed ineffectual either bodily or mental suffering or loss of blood or all three combined were fast prostrating his strength he moaned so and looked so weak wild and lost i feared he was dying and i might not even speak to him the candle wasted at last went out as it expired i perceived streaks of gray light edging the window curtains dawn was then approaching presently i heard pilot bark far below out of his distant kennel in the courtyard hope revived nor was it unwarranted in five minutes more the grating key the yielding lock warned me my watch was relieved it could not have lasted more than two hours many a week had seemed shorter to be continued hey i wanted to let you know about a new partnership that definitely storytime has with a company called salty llama you may have seen them in the news or advertised by real people on social media they are focused on sustainability around one of our biggest pollution challenges laundry 
Now, I know I don't like lugging those heavy and wasteful jugs around, measuring, spilling, the drippy goo around the opening and the cap, the bother of trying to get the last bit out of the container because you don't want to waste it, then having to put that monster jug in the recycling where it takes up a lot of space in the bin and probably isn't even being recycled because so few plastics actually are. Well, I'm here with good news. We can spare ourselves all of that hassle and waste with Salty Llama laundry sheets. They are made from natural ingredients. There's even one for sensitive skin. They come in a compostable fiber-based sleeve and are super light for you and to transport as they produce only 4% of the CO2 emissions of regular laundry detergent transportation. And even better, they are pre-measured for small, medium, and large loads, so you just have to tear off the size you need. No waste, no goo, no spills and drips, no turning the bottle upside down waiting for a slow drizzle to get the last bit out. None of that. And if you aren't totally convinced, it is risk-free because they have a 100% money-back guarantee, no questions asked. And free shipping throughout the U.S., U.K., and Europe, all because they care and are committed to helping our planet. So head over to saltylama.com, 1L, a direct link can be found in with my other links in the podcast description, and you can use my affiliate code, definitely storytime, no spaces, for 10% off to help you, and I mean all of us, really. And that has been our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll consider telling your friends and family. And if you have the means, providing listener support. I also have a Patreon, and I have merchandise available on Teespring. Links are on the homepage. I thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime.